to reify a false and truncated metaphysics. For example, to say love doesn't exist, free will doesn't actually exist, to like really try to build institutions based on that, which would result in a radically authoritarian society. You know, these things have been done, but never with the technological power that we now have to, for example, build a school around that hypothesis, <laughs> et cetera, or an army. And so there's this very kind of, I think, sincere need to make sure that as we move through this period, you know, we're, we're keeping the voices you want to simplify and reduce and return to modernity <laughs> and the monological, keep those voices at bay. So like applaud the postmodernists. <laughs> but then we also want to, you know, in a sense, get beyond this postmodern critique and the whole spirit and emotion of critique and somehow move into a space where we're reconstructing a, a new meta narrative, provisional, right? Polycentric built iteratively through collaboration, but there needs to be a project in good spirits in that direction. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. You know, a lot of people will probably consider it ridiculous that I talk about our place in time at all. The scientific culture that I went to school in doesn't see the evolutionary process as directional regards our adaptations as a kind of random drunkard's walk across a landscape that just shifts and doesn't go someplace. And then the cultures that I've hung out in since then, both the postmodern philosophical as well as New Age festival scenes, dismiss the idea of a universal truth at all, regarding all perspectives as somehow equally relative and thus unfounded in some kind of common human universal truth that we can pin a planetary culture to. But neither of those angles leaves us any room to come together as a species and answer the most fundamental questions that we have been asking since the human species started, namely, who are we? What are we doing here? Where are we driving this thing? What matters? <laughs> if you think that we can't come up with answers to these questions, you're as lost as all of us are lost right now in this post-truth era. I'm doing bunny ear quotes you can't see, but... The whole problem with this regressive return to racism, nationalism, religious fundamentalism on one hand, and then on the other hand, this bizarre Silicon Valley authoritarian behaviorist Borg assertion that the human being is just a machine that can and should be programmed. This is the kind of lesser sense that oozes in to culture when the greater sense of rigorous and open-ended inquiry together gives up. Yes, it's hard to keep an open question and yet push into the mystery with everything we've got. But that is the work cut out for us, my friends. And so it is with pleasure I introduce you to Zach Stein, one of the more articulate and thoughtful people that I know addressing this in both his writing and his teaching and the conversations he facilitates. 
as an active member of an emerging philosophical movement called metamodernism, which builds upon the insights of scientific modernism as well as postmodernism, honoring both the objective and subjective realities and positing an evolutionary and provisional new way of being in the world that can adapt to the shifting, turbulent conditions of our century and the decay of centralized powers and the stories they entranced us with. Zach's latest essay, Love in a Time Between Worlds, on the metamodern return to a metaphysics of Eros, is a delicious jaunt into a provocative but sensible argument that what we need on Earth right now is a return to and a reclamation of both the subjectivity of the individual from which scientific inquiry emerges in the first place, as well as the humble acceptance that all scientific knowledge is bound to our cultural and linguistic contexts and constantly up for review. Yeah, we can make science even more scientific. We can make our humanities even more human. And to do so requires a meta-perspectival approach. The kind that Zach outlines in his more than 10 years of writing and in this piece and conversation quite deliciously. Before I begin, I just want to thank every single one of the Patreon supporters, as well as the over 1,500 people in our Facebook group, for being the lifeblood of this show. I may be its bones, but the bones are really there just to support the conversation. Maybe that's not the best metaphor, <laughs> but whatever. I just am super grateful to every single one of you. If you'd like to help me keep this show untethered from the dehumanizing demands of the market, you can chip in on a monthly basis at patreon.com, or you can send payments on Venmo to at Future Fossils. Everything helps, of course, totally unnecessary. I'm super glad to have you listening at all and sharing the shows that you enjoy with your friends. It means a lot. And again, this really is just about creating a space for an even wider and more crucial conversation about the things that are discussed on this show. So, if I'm doing that, mission accomplished. That said, it is a one-man operation, which means I do not have an audio producer or an editorial team, and it takes about 10 hours to edit and produce every one of these episodes, and sometimes I screw up the recordings, like I did with this episode, so I apologize for the uh, somewhat lousy audio quality. Uh, my end was way, way, way quieter than it should have been, and I had to compress the hell out of it, but the human project is a rough affair right now, right? So in the spirit of loose weaves and raw brilliance, I am honored to present to you this conversation with Zach Stein on the metaphysics of Eros and an evolution into the metamodern. Thanks, and I'll see you next week.
Welcome on board, Zach Stein. How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Some thunderstorms rolled through, so it's uh, that kind of fresh after the storm here in Vermont. Mm. Well, it's it's after your storm, but before our storm here in Austin, <laughs> Texas, which is due to hit us sometime this afternoon. So we exist, uh, you might say, between things then, right? Between worlds. The sort of, are we after the storm or before the storm is something that um, I feel characterizes our our moment right now. Like a moment sort of where we've we've taken apart. I'm, I'm doing a very awkward, painful segue into your... <laughs> your work here but we're, I like it I like we're at that moment where it you know the question of have we just survived the sort of shattering of of reality of the postmodern philosophical project or are we only preparing ourselves for the magmatic nonsense of you know what is to come and so i think that i told you this before the call we we, we didn't get into um i didn't make it all the way through your paper which i found very uh, disappointing uh, as far as my own discipline is concerned. But your piece on, on, on the metaphysics of Eros, I find really stimulating because these issues around reality, what is real, are popping up in, in everything now. And mm-hmm. it's becoming a prime concern of your average person, I feel like, in our time. And it's it's a really, I think that's a really important thing to be writing on. So why don't you introduce this piece to people? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It's, an, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast, too. I have to say, I've been waiting to talk to you for a long time. I feel like it's a conversation we've been both wanting to have that, for whatever reason, hasn't happened yet. And now it's happening, so it's exciting. Uh, yeah, so the, the paper, uh, it's just published in Integral Review. You can find it online or it'll probably be linked on your on your site there, Michael. I, the, the paper stems fundamentally from my collaboration with... Uh, Mark Gaffney and my long-standing movement in this kind of world of integral theory. Um, uh, but it, the reason I even was in that world of integral theory and the reason I continue to work with Mark, who's a, a rabbi and has a doctorate from Oxford in religious studies, and, and the reason why I do, uh, even as a psychologist, dabble in metaphysics is because of what you just said, that we actually live in a time between worlds and a time in which the deepest questions about what it means to be human are kind of on the table again. It's like there are neuroscientists seriously suggesting we don't have free will and arguing we can, like, change the legal system, which is predicated upon free will, by the way. <laughs> like, we can change the legal system. We can change the legal system to say that there is no free will. Like, the serious suggestions. And also, of course, does God exist? Is there an afterlife? Is there reincarnation? Uh, the nature of illness, the nature of healing. Uh, all of these things are scattered in this kind of post-truth cultural desert where you're not sure which one's uh, you know, a, a thriving oasis and which one's a, you know, basically a mirage. Uh, and, and part of that's due to the internet. And I talk about the kind of structural way that the post-truth culture has been generated by the very logic of the communication technology. But it's also a moment, properly speaking, in the evolution of culture, which is to say it's a rightful overcoming of the singular logic and logocentrism and monocentrism of modernity. Mm-hmm. And so the postmodern proliferation of perspectives and the 
and the concomitant confusion <laughs> is is par for the course. But it's of course a dangerous, critical global path now through the confusion back to reality. And so I talk about a return to eros and a return to a metaphysics in which not just physical things are real, but also the things that populate the human interiors and especially the constellation of emotions around love, that these things are as real <laughs> as any of the physical properties. And so this gets to, again, the nature of reality and the need to have it more nuanced metaphysics that doesn't just materiality and meaningless matter in motion and Darwinian dynamics, but that includes meaning, value, interiorities, consciousness, etc. Yeah, but like, let's, I mean, you do this by sort of starting from the philosophical position of the metamodernists. Correct. And, which I, it feels very much, I, you know, I'm not as deep in the sort of culture of the post-postmodern uh, as I used to be, as I was when you and I encountered each other for the first time. But it seems as though it's very much in keeping with and sort of growing beyond the conversation around integral philosophy and this desire to recognize all forms of knowledge as socially constructed and uh, in bound by this interpretive framing that, you know, everything is an interpretation, but that it doesn't satisfy itself in stopping there. Right. So it's like if we just assume that everything is equally illusory, then we're left with no sort of practical action. And so you start this paper with like a list articulating the metamodernist perspective on science and on reality. But what do you think the, the quicks that, you know, the, the takeaways are for people listening to this who are struggling with the idea that we could place consciousness uh, on a, an ontologically equivalent plane with matter or, you know, that kind of thing? Right. Totally. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the framing of the paper is in terms of the cultural epoch or kind of historical periodization, right, which is so you can slice history into, you, can, you know, the history is this very complicated stream. You can slice it into periods or epochs. And so there's a group um, that is, uh, you know, mostly in kind of Europe and there are, there are some American representatives who have kind of dubbed the emerging period of history that we are entering as metamodern. And I think it's an important conversation um, because I was convinced long ago by Habermas and others that what we call postmodernism is actually most of the traits of modernity just with the volume turned really way up. Like is subject, you know, subjectivity increases, you know, contextualization increases. Instead of one perspective, you get many perspectives, not the pre-perspectival, pre-modern, <laughs> where the individual and the group refuse, but this hyper-individualism flourishes more under postmoderners. So this idea that there must be a, a cultural turning in which we can critique both the postmodern and the modern, and we can value both the postmodern and the modern, which is to say there's something that's distinctly non-modern or metamodern which will get a name later. <laughs> We're not sure what it will be. That's the way I hold it. Then an integral theory, which I discovered very young, like in my 20s, like I was 20, literally, when I read Sex, Ecology, Spirituality. Um, you know, this was 
I see this now as a species of metamodern philosophy. And there are many uh, varieties of metamodern philosophy. Not all of them are integral theory. Integral theory is one that I started with and like a lot. Um, but uh, there are other candidates, mm. metamodern, you know, metamodern worldviews. <clears throat> and so, you know, one of the things that makes a cultural period a period is that there's some coherence to the structure of it. And so this list you talk about in the beginning of my paper, it's, it's a list of the things that kind of characterize the meta-modern historical period's view of reality and science. And it's distinctly different from the postmodern and the modern, right? So the, the modern view of science is that science is the truth, period. <laughs> like in the period, it's very definite. The postmodern view of science is like science is one view, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> right? Like there's actually many and science is one. Uh, the metamodern view essentially tries to say that both of those are true. And as you were saying, within a specific context, science works and actually discovers things. The problem is that it oversteps its context. And so it takes, for example, an experiment that was done in a very closed condition in a laboratory and pretends that what's discovered there applies to radically open systems outside the laboratory. Right? And that's where you get pharmaceuticals in the drinking water because we precisely <laughs> push this thing through. No, that's and that's a perfect example, you know, and that's exactly the danger of the modern view, which is correct in the laboratory, guys. Like don't take and so the postmodern sees that moment of error in the modern and then wants to throw science out the window completely, the metamodernist says, hold on, something happened in the laboratory. <laughs> like we, we have to actually pay attention to the moment of truth in the modern and then, you know, contextualize it with the postmodern, you know, alternative, uh, which says, well, let's do a bunch of other experiments. Let's do things that don't even look like experiments, right? And let's look at methodologies that are non-quantitative and methodologies that are phenomenological and purely subjective, which a modernist would never even touch. So you get this proliferation of methods, proliferation of perspectives, all good, but now a total fragmentation. <laughs> and like out of the academy comes totally confusing gobbledygook about what is the nature of the human <laughs> you know the, the the humanities will say what we've been saying since ancient rome which doesn't apply <laughs> and the sciences will say insane things like there's no free will or we're just crazy monkeys that want to like kill and and, and that's it uh, and so that fragmentation of the the weird combination of the modern and the postmodern without a resynthesis, without a metamodern reconvergence, um, which is what integral theory attempts to do. And integral theory is a very early attempt, by the way, in the modern, in the metamodern historical period. Uh, one of the first, really. Um, Charles Sanders first. Charles Sanders purse <laughs> from the 1890s, I think, being the actual first. And I mentioned him in this, this paper um, that, that we're talking about. So, yeah, so the thing that characterizes this new period is, in fact, the integration of the modern and the postmodern in some new view of science, specifically, right? And so that would be a science that includes interiorities and that puts all methods in contexts. And this is what we're getting into this list now. So there's a whole bunch of characteristics that would allow for the best, most rigorous science <laughs> to then be put through the kind of culturally sensitive kind of matrix of postmodernism and then to result in, in, action, in an actionable <laughs> and coherent worldview. Um, and there are very few examples of this 
kind of science. Um, but it, it's a very distinct possibility for a new historical epoch, a non-reductionistic, complex system of science. This is what's been promised to us for a long time by the, quote, new, the new paradigm. <laughs> uh, and so we know nonlinearity exists, you know, that chaos is a, is a factor that needs to be dealt with in the very nature of the universe. Uh, it's not a mistake or something to get out of the laboratory. We actually need to look at chaotic phenomena. That's a very metamodern view, um, the idea of distributed causality, right? not just one-to-one causal systems, but where there are systems with many multiple causes. Um, you know, these things are in the air, and many people on the fringes know this, but building institutions, building medical practice, building educational practice around that, quote, new paradigm, <laughs> is, is what the metamodern attempts to do. And most of the metamodern work right now is in aesthetics and politics, and that's not a coincidence, because in order to even do science in a metamodern way, the political conditions and economic conditions and subjectivity need to be, you know, available basically. Um, so I'll pause there. <laughs> well, okay. So that's a great place to, I, I have been pulling quotes from this to read. And I think that this, this is a good one to give people an idea of not only your writing style and the, uh, the cheesecake juiciness of it, but also, the, the what the stakes are in this like very cerebral conversation, where you say, right-wing and authoritarian political thought is resurgent today because of the absence of reasonable discourse about metaphysical realities during a time when exactly these realities are being put in question due to the apocalypse of global capitalism and the accompanying planetary transition into the Anthropocene. I think about this a lot. Like, I, I run social media for a local freshwater conservation organization here in Austin called Save Our Springs Alliance, and they do this thing every year called Barton Springs University, which is like a day of outdoor educational programming about hydrogeology and awesome. environmental ecology and all this stuff. And uh, someone on Facebook commented in the thread uh, that this was fake news because it's not an actual university. And I was like, this is not the hill to die on in this fight. <laughs> like, this is, but this is where people are. You know, it's, it's like uh, there's, we've developed a kind of an allergy now. Like we haven't really figured out how to handle this stuff at a, at a social level. Right. You know, the, this is a constant theme on the show of, you know, knowledge management. Talked about this with Hunter Motz, with uh, Dennis McKenna, with Charles Eisenstein, this issue of, when you get into the specifically complexity sciences, specifically this issue of nonlinear causation, and there always being a sort of a deep web, if you will, of causal influences that you're not detecting or differentiating through your experimental design, then it's a very uh, serious assault on the practice of science as we have been using it, understanding it and on what kind of truth claims it can provide to us. So I'm, I, mean, I guess I'm curious, how do you see this practically resolving? And, and, and why, I guess maybe even more importantly, why, why metaphysics <laughs> now? Like, why, why specifically this thing? And you, t you go into this into great detail about this in the paper. Why is this thing that, we, it seems like we're saving it from the trash of the pre-modern world. You know, these conversations about the crystal spheres of, you know, the higher realms or, you know, like, um, you know, R Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophy. And it's sort of 
metaphysical cartography of you know the etheric and astral planes and all this stuff is this the kind of metaphysics that you're talking about bringing back into the the conversation about these much more rigorous and robust practice of science yeah i mean in a way yes and rudolf steiner's an interesting example because he's so close to the realm of education and you know i say yes because what steiner offered was a a complex metaphysical characterization of the human and the human's place in the universe. And that's essential for education, unless you want to make education about getting a job or being a citizen. And so I was a you know graduate student and a teacher at the Harvard School of Education. I had a student who came from Egypt who was raised in a traditional Islamic context very very intelligent very progressive thinker actually i lost touch with him and i wonder what happened to him sometimes during the the political upheaval in egypt but in any case he said to me once after this long course that we were teaching in constructivist education which is like the call the cutting edge theory in education and he said to me this is never going to work he said the problem with modern education and with what is happening here is that there's no conception of what is the human <laughs> right like there's there's no answer to what is the human and what is the meaning of life and you're putting on this whole complex institutional arrangement and giving people direction and actually spiritual instruction in a way by shaping their skills and shaping their capacities and potentialities uh, and yet you're not answering the most fundamental question which is what is the human and that was a question that steiner set out to answer and uh answered it well enough to give teachers a pedagogy to create one of the most successful international um, independent schools. It's, it's a phenomenon. And whether you believe his metaphysics or not, you have to see that the pedagogy is incredibly effective. And one of the reasons it's effective is because it relies on a science of interiorities. It says precisely that the meaning and the ideas and the sense-making of the child is as important as any of the... Uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as it were, <laughs> right? So you need to mend and pay attention to the soul qualities of interiority um, and not just the external personality that will eventually fit into the, the modern world system. Uh, and so, again, the bringing up the, the Islamic student that I had and then the sense that we have in general that truth is not <laughs> readily available you know, there's a resurgence of fundamentalist religion, for example. Um, there's a resurgence of racism justified through pretense of biology, right? There's a reassertion of a kind of nationalism that espouses an essentialism that is basically a, a, a metaphysics of the person. <laughs> so if we don't provide a metaphysics of what it means to be human, and we don't provide a way of understanding the relation between the human and the universe— It'll be given to us. It could be coming from a movie or a comic book for a lot of people. <laughs> but we need a story, a universe story, a story of self, a story of cosmos. And so in the long absence of that through modernity, which is predicated upon not worrying about how many angels dance on the head of a pin anymore. <laughs> right? Modernity, modernity was predicated upon you know, no more witch trials, at least not that kind of witch trial where there's actual witches and demons and things. We just don't believe that. And so science 
became the replacement um, and the absence of metaphysics is what's characterized the capitalist world system. So in the absence of metaphysics, there's this vacuum of meaning, a kind of a vacuum of power. Um, and uh, it, what can step into that is not always pretty. And so, the, you know, the reason why I actually wrote this paper and think I may continue to do work in metaphysics and perhaps even leaning on Steiner um, because of his because of the, how, how good it is, um, you know, is, is to answer these irrational metaphysical views that are just popping into people's minds because there's just a vacuum. Right. Like it's a historically it's a historically unprecedented situation to have a whole global society predicated upon the absence of a shared metaphysics or worldview, universe story, story of cosmos and self, et cetera. And so, yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, you, you, um, you're bringing up for me to put it into, like, concrete examples. There is, you know, Richard Dawkins is very fond of telling people that their particular suppositions are not even wrong, as in they're empirically unfalsifiable. And so, therefore, they're not worthy the time or attention of anyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this okay. is, that's, your, that's your, like, textbook, modern vacuum of subjectivity that you're, you're talking about there. Right. Um, that, that these issues, but in a sense, that position, you know, is, is not even, not even wrong, right? Because it's seemingly uh, willfully blind to the social psychological cultural consequences of insisting on reifying that vacuum in the sense that you know it may not be uh by reducing everything to the empirical you squash the moral side of the conversation and the moral side this is you know this is where i think uh years ago tony blair and christopher hitchens had a a uh a televised debate about whether religion does good in the world or not and, uh, you know, I think th th it's funny how um, science seems to open us up into uh, this kind of discovery where we realize that, you know, like the people who have something to believe in are happier people. They live longer, healthier lives, you know. Yes. And so, so I'm I'm curious um, how you see this contest over the definition of humanity going in the next couple of decades. And then also um, whether you think we're actually ever going to arrive at a new, like globally shared definition or whether you think we'll end up in, in some sort of synthesis or, I mean, I know that that's one of the, that's actually one of the sort of peers of, or like tenets of meta modernism is that things are held in a sort of, provisional loose proto-synthetic way that we can come to a conclusion but we we never crush the egg in our hand so i mean how do you think this is going to go as far as defining the human uh <laughs> i mean what the last thing you just said is is, is correct i mean if after postmodernism, we can't return to some kind of pat totalizing answer for everybody i mean after postmodernism, when we begin to kind of build a new coherence it's going to be a polycentric and dynamic and always renegotiated coherence and that's what science ought to be and so it which is to say this knowledge building not knowledge finding period 
And uh, so the new metaphysics or the new kind of humanism, as it were, uh, that would bring some consensus would need to work with a new definition of empirical, right? Now, to dismiss someone's argument out of hand and kind of shut down a conversation, as is done by some scientists, to me is always more a sign of like a personality trait <laughs> than, like a, than like a structure in the discourse. Because you can always hear somebody out and be curious, even about why they would say something or what their emotions are in holding a belief. So to just shut someone down is, is, uh, is not great. But to claim that the nature of what it means to be empirical is to be verified or actually literally seen physically uh, is also a tremendously naive philosophy of science. And there's a whole kind of bouquet of methods in the human sciences uh, in which there's nothing like simple visual verification or that kind of confirmation that many simplistic materialists, empiricists would demand. And so, in fact, part of building the new metaphysics is expanding that definition of empirical like, what does it mean to do empiricism? William James, right, claimed to be a radical empiricist. And exactly because he included the data of consciousness, right? It's actually more radically empirical to include what you're actually living with every day, right? So, for example, if you're a neuroscientist and you write a paper where you claim that love, for example, is just certain hormonal tendencies and you try to basically explain love away as a materialistic kind of epiphenomenon, a kind of excretion of the limbic system and brain. But then you go home and you look at your kid at the dinner table, right? And you experience love. Uh, but what do you do in the moment as a neuroscientist, right? And so this is Hume and a whole bunch of other people like Charles Sanders Peirce and other philosophers who said, listen, once you leave the laboratory, once you leave the study, leave the armchair, can you still deny the reality of interiority and value? And do you still want to claim to have no free will and that the love you have for your wife and your child are some kind of illusion and some kind of epiphenomenon? So there's a lack of seriousness to these types of proposals that come from the radical empiricists. Um, and it shows, you know, that other things are at stake when you publish papers than the truth. Because the truth is sitting there at the dinner table with them every night, not in the fMRI scanner. Now, part of the truth and a very important part of the truth is in the fMRI scanner, right? So this is about the metamodern contextualization of the limited moments of scientific truth. And that allows for including a science of interiorities. And then you start to build this very complex picture of the human as both a dynamical, complex physical object, but also a dynamical, complex, emotional, and ideating and imagining subject. And, uh, you know, again, this is, for example, what Rudolf Steiner was working with. Very rigorous understanding of human anatomy and physiology. Steiner was actually a student of Goethe and a student of all the leading physical scientists of his day. There was probably actually no book on metaphysics and neuroscientists that was published that in that time that, that Steiner hadn't read and was respected, actually, in the mainstream discourse about biology because of his work with Goethe, kind of actually bringing Goethe's scientific writings to light. And so he knew the physiology of the human and actually the evolutionary dynamics of its current kind of form, uh, and yet also had this deep understanding of the nature of these, again, soul characteristics or ideational and imaginal characteristics, which at the end of the day give shape to even the physical body. Um, the depressed man's physiology is different from the man who lives with a deep sense of purpose and meaning. 
And so this is very important that ideas matter. And right now we live in a context in which ideas matter only insofar as they can be leveraged for clicks on websites that generate advertisement revenue. I don't want to just like reduce it to the economic structuring of the media on which the whole thing is run, but it's hard not to see the linchpin of the whole system having to do with internet content that's provided on advertising revenue as opposed to subscription basis. <laughs> and that was a key moment that actually Micah White notes in his really good book, The End of Protest, where he looks at the documents from the meeting of these advertising companies who got it together and they said, listen, if the internet runs on revenue from subscription, then we'll lose commercials and everything on TV and, and in magazines and everyone will get everything from the internet. <laughs> and uh, so they flipped it. And it, it so radically distorts the speech act. In the paper that you're talking about, I, I write six characteristics that are kind of amplifying the post-truth culture. And these characteristics have to do with the inevitable suspicion one has if they are reflective whenever they read anything on the internet. Like the idea... The technologization of our attention. Yeah. Because of the technologization, of this, because of the battle for the monetization of attention. And the meaning of that is that you can't separate information from disinformation that people are spreading for advantage. And you can't separate valid information from information that's spread to, you know, essentially convince you to buy something. Uh, so it, it's quite a mess and it's, it's, it's a simple, I mean, it really is like a, as simple as finding a way to break that cycle of generating content based on advertisement revenue. Then you could look at something and say, okay, now I'm back to the old position <laughs> of, you know, uh, looking at the merit of something, not its ability just to capture my attention, but actually the merit of what's written. So, yeah, so we're, we're even losing that ability to use our considered judgment around complex texts and claims. And so there's a longer discussion about what happened to the human during modernity and post-modernity. But one of the things was that we gave our choice-making power over to authorities and experts um, kind of gladly and with great relief. Can we go to a doctor and just totally 100% trust what they say? You'll <laughs> right, glad read advertisements, for example. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The pack of cigs in his lap, you know, smoking. Right, exactly. Gladly do we give our kids to the expert teacher. Gladly do we bring our car to the mechanic. You know, this idea that many of our choices, which are instrumental to our life, we give the choice-making power over to others, and we lose our sovereignty and autonomy, um, but we gain the expertise and lighten the cognitive load. And so there's a weird flip taking place now with the availability of information on the internet and the radical questioning of expertise and the wanting to reclaim sovereignty over choice-making power. At the same time, we have no idea <laughs> if the experts were always lying to us or not. <laughs> and we have no idea if the current people who are in those positions who would say, don't go on the internet looking for medical information <laughs> or, or whatever um, – yeah, yeah. So that's again this crisis of post truth. There's a good, there's a good moment in this, but it's a dangerous moment, right? So it's good people are reclaiming sovereignty over their choice making power, and yet experts have expertise often. In a way, it's <laughs> like, getting I'm, even more necessary for us to rely on experts in the right time. And again, it's so just like you would contextualize the scientific finding in the laboratory, you must really contextualize the exercise of expertise, um, and so you can engage an expert without being 
infantilized, right? That's possible. <laughs> you can engage a bureaucratic system without being dehumanized. It's possible, but it doesn't happen a lot. Often, part of what it means to get involved in these things is to have the choice-making power actually kind of taken from you a little bit too strongly, as it were. <laughs> um, and again, there's a deep hermeneutic of suspicion that runs through the psychiatric and medical professions where there's a distrusting of patients. It's a long history of this. But, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, but the point being is, is that it, it's hard to reclaim sovereignty in the context when experts still reign. Uh, were we to find a way to better democratize the availability of access to expertise, change the incentive structures under which the experts work, change the insurance structures under which the patients are brought to the experts, et cetera. You can imagine a situation in which there's actually co-education between patient and doctor, to use one example. Uh, that type of meta-modern dialogical relationship, as opposed to the modern monological, <laughs> is very important. Um, right now we're stuck between <laughs> in this aperspectival madness when you don't trust the expert, but you also can't trust the information you get online, and you certainly can't trust your crazy friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, who do you... Who do you trust? Who knows? You know, it used to be you could just watch the news. They know. CNN knows. <laughs> you know, now if you're reflective, you're like, whoa, no, CNN doesn't know. And neither does the Washington Post and neither does Fox News. You know, if, if you're working with a media outlet and you think yours is the one that has it right and the other guys are brainwashed, you've been brainwashed <laughs> by, your, by your own media outlet. Like you have to have a reflective meta view of all these things. Like Seth Abramson, this great meta-modern journalist who's got this very popular Twitter feed where he just synthesizes all of this journalistic output and tries to read the deeper reality, like the actual reality. Not what do we say to get people to come to our site to sell advertisements? <laughs> How do we sensationalize and, and, and package it such? But actually, what's the reality under all these things? What are they pointing to? Um, so that kind of synthetic curation of the modern news media is necessary now. Um, I, that's one of the things that worries me. Facebook worries me. And as an edu as educationist, these things worry me the way like nuclear reactors worry kind of nuclear uh, activists. <laughs> like like there's a there's a serious cultural kind of radioactivity that could spread through the newosphere. And we're, we're kind of already we're already witnessing that as personalities kind of atrophy under the weight of the postmodern kind of cyber static. <laughs> you know, it's just it's uh, you have to unplug a lot from that. At least I do personally. And that how do you get back to reality? Your body is, you know, through your body, you vision God. This is Book of Job, right? The body itself is the most refined instrument of reality perception available. How wow. interesting that you – I was just on a, a morning bike ride this morning and found a, a free library in the neighborhood in front of somebody's house, grabbed a copy of Tom Robbins' Even Cowgirls Get the Blues out of it, and right. the opening quote from that book is, The lust of the goat is the bounty of God, the nakedness of woman is the work of God, excess of sorrow laughs, excess of joy weeps. It's William Blake. Right. You know, and that mm. – that, um, mm. that enantiodromia there, the, the, the pushing so forward, so, so deeply into the, the decay of one thing that it creates its opposite, you know, right. listening to you speak about all this, it really, it reminds me of the story I heard from the guy selling me a guitar a few years ago. 
Nice. Uh, I know you're a musician, so you, totally. you appreciate this, I think. I've had conversations buying guitars, actually, that were very profound. <laughs> yeah. Is it, I, I, there were two of these Koa tailors right next to each other. The same model, the same, the same tone wood. And one of them sounded dramatically better. Looked better, too. It had this gorgeous yeah. shimmer to the wood. And I asked him about it. I was like, "What? why is one of these s- guitars with the same wood and the same price so much nicer than the other? And he right. said... Well, koa is a funny thing. Koa can only be harvested after it's fallen as a tone wood. And I think it's maybe possibly because it's protected because, you know, it's very limited in range. I'm not sure. But he said it can only be harvested after it's fallen. And so you just sort of find it, you know, and depending on the conditions of the, 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 the wood at the time that the koa grew, you get different kinds of koa. He's like, this koa that you like, this is the curly koa. And this stuff happens when a tree falls and suddenly there's an open patch of sunlight in the woods and all of the saplings around it compete. They have to rush. So it grows the wood in a different way. The the wood itself is nonlinear. It doesn't form these long straight fibers. It like bundles and, and like curves on itself and forms what produces a much more complex, like rich acoustic character. Like something you would call, uh, you know, it's got a, it's got more soul to it. Right. And so it's funny, you know, there's just something in there, I feel, about the the decay of authority and expertise. So like the crisis of legitimacy that we're going through yes. now and the the reassertion uh, or the resurgence of the considerations of soul in this. But and yet, like, you know, 50 different right. versions of that, everyone yes. racing for the sun. That's exactly right. And that's why there's this actually, even though we don't know it, right now what's taking place is a race for the metamodern metaphysics. It's a race for the answer of what is the human as we're kind of like transition in what I think is going to be a very dynamic and complex set of decades into a, a really truly interlinked in the sense of politically global metastructure. Um, it's already happening, you know, the stack, as it were, by Benjamin Bratton's idea, you know, that the whole world is being housed in a, a giant computer, essentially, which means that we're all going to be in the same giant shopping mall together. <laughs> that's actually, you know, that's a John David Ebert talks about hyper modernity. Yes. And, you know, he talks a lot about the global shopping mall, you know, and, and, and leverages a similar critique that postmodernism is actually not post at all. It's just right. exponentiated. It's, it's modernity exponentiated, and, and but the, the point is that there's this sense that because the transition's happening, like this is, a, again, the metamodern historical period has to do with signaling like at the beginning of history, like the beginning of a new kind of history, and that has to do with the making of the earth into an enormous building, basically. This is a, an idea... Rudolf Steiner brought down, <laughs> you know, that one of the tasks of humanity in this epoch is actually to, 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 to relate to the earth as if it was its own construction. Um, so it's kind of a biblical idea, but there's a way in which the metamodern signals the Anthropocene, which signals the inextricable link between the human and the ecosphere. And that requires that we get in touch with the realities of the ecosphere um, so there, there's there's a there's the coming of a new sense of the real and a new sense of what's out there 
um, this is kind of the cloud of, <laughs> of, uh, of confusion and the kind of the fog of war, in fact, as we shape that new, that new sense of what the world is about. So yeah, it's a, it is an interesting historical moment. And this is what the paper's about. Yeah. That in a sense, we need to, we need to seize the moment and create a vision of the human that is positive because you can imagine regressive returns to kind of weird amalgamums of pre-modern metaphysics and conventional religion and authoritarian political regimes, you know, that could clamp down after, let's say, a natural disaster um, and uh, justify themselves with a new metaphysics, not just a political efficiency or economic efficiency, but with a metaphysical uh, value or mission. You see, we haven't had politics like that for a long time. I <laughs> suspect that, actually. I think, you know, William Irwin Thompson kind of saw that as an inevitable dark age of, of transition. Right. Yeah, Thompson is exactly. I mean, I'm, that whole idea of the personality dissolving in the chaotic soup of the postmodern. I mean, that's basically I'm plagiarizing William Irwin Thompson there. <laughs> I mean, he's so brilliant, and he was seeing this from from you know from his lighthouse in, in Maine. You know, just this the way that the whole kind of soil in which the humans grow is changing, and so just these uh, something new is emerging, and so they have the, the new metamodern metaphysics. We need to be the avant-garde and begin to articulate positive visions of what it means to be human and human potential to counteract, for example, things like race realism or the resurgent kind of nationalisms. Um, and uh, all those, like you're saying, when you quoted my paper, these the return of these kind of weird throwback right-wing political formations, which always signal a return to a kind of they share some weird metaphysical belief, like racism, for example, which is a weird metaphysical belief. Um, and uh, or they share some weird metaphysical belief like Americans are the greatest people on earth, <laughs> like this weird value judgment about a particular group um, is another example of where in the vacuum of an absence of metaphysics, these views come in and people shape their whole lives around a fundamental value, which is, you know, more or less insane. And uh, it's and so yeah, there's this need to just have available other resources by which people can build their identities and. Right now, the resources are. They, it looks like it's a it's a like a, a huge uh, riches, <laughs> um, when in fact it's it's all this kind of strange commodified social media, and you have to succeed in building your identity despite the system trying to essentially trap you in some form of prepackaged <laughs> like. Uh, you know, so identity. So I'm just oh, yeah, as you can see, self that whole like. You know, yeah. you've got 20 different right. choices of coffee. So it's it's you. It's the coffee right. you want. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all the same coffee repackaged right. in different cups, you know. So re returning to your paper, or like sort of focusing in on your paper a little bit more, you talk about the emerging uh, synthesis being a cosmoerotic humanism, which is a phrase I love. And it reminds me, you know, in talking about the – the new myth that we need for years. I've been thinking and joking about how the first space race was done, at least, you know, ostensibly it was done as a show of military power prowess across right. the, the iron curtain, you know? And so war was the first global motivator to transcend the, uh, you know, the biosphere in some sense. But then I don't know, this is a, 
a squishy assertion, but it seems to me like you might be able to trace a lot of the development of technology sort of up a spiral from, for lack of a, a better shorthand, from like first chakra survival needs to second chakra reproduction, you know, and then like onward to social and, and ever more sort of subtle, nuanced, creative, self-transcending demands. And I was like, well, so clearly what we need uh, for this the next space race is I mean right now what we're seeing is like Bezos and Blue Origin and and Musk and SpaceX is is uh, asteroid mining it's a very you know s- a second chakra in the acquisitive sense um, but I was like well what if we what if we shot for a zero gravity Kama Sutra and we put together like you know a uh, like a as an eclipse station. That was at the Lagrange point with the moon so that it was always in eclipse. And we could have a resurgence of the Black Madonna in orbit where, you know, people from all over the world, you know, met in a, in a, a zero gravity sex university. And then it, it wouldn't be about, you know, who came first, you know, I, I don't know. But I, I feel like you're you probably have a sure. much more um, like uh, elocute <laughs> way of, of articulating this. And so, you know, what? How do you see a cosmo-erotic humanism unfolding? And specifically for, you know, for people who are probably, you know, possibly still hung up on, you know, your Eros Thanatos thing, pause and Google it. But, you know, how do you see these metaphysical forces in a metamodern metaphysics, Eros and Thanatos? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, so the phrase, the cosmo-erotic humanism, that that Scaffney and me came up with that, along with Barbara Marx Hubbard. Wilbur was involved in the conversation, Schmachtenberger, Christina Kincaid. It was this kind of conversation that was happening at the Center for Integral Wisdom, which is, was kind of like, you know, this cul-de-sac in the integral scene where a lot of the, the conversation kept going, even though a lot of what surrounded integral theory seemed to, to not keep going. But in any case, so cosmoerotic humanism became this theme. And it became a theme about, yeah, this new positive, evolutionarily uh, optimistic form of humanism, which was wedded to a metaphysics of eros, which is to say a metaphysics that believes that evolution is not simply a random and chaotic material process, but that evolution has a certain teleology and that the teleology moves towards increases in the quality like love, which is to say intensity of interconnection, depth of consciousness, creativity, emergence, and all the kind of qualities that fall under this heading of the erotic. And it's important not to at all reduce the erotic to sex, but I think your idea is actually amazing. One <laughs> of the lunar tantric university um, and, and tantrics to the point, you know, if you look at Jeffrey uh, Kripal at uh, Rice University and other modern thinkers on Tantra, like Gaffney, for example, you, you realize that the, the point of erotic energy and the point of Tantra, for example, is that it's, it's not about sex per se. It's about the emotional energy that can be invested in sex, the erotic energy, right? Which is to say the feeling of total significance and, and utter transfixedness, like the flow state. That expanding beyond sex such that your whole life becomes a kind of erotic merger with what you are engaging with. And we've had this experience of basically, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like 
fucking a book that we were reading, right? <laughs> or going or going out into the wilderness and feeling kind of ravaged by the beauty of the place. We're literally you're like almost gasping because the sunset is you're you're, you're one with it. Um, so I these read two books at once and it feels really right. <laughs> I get as long as they're the first and it's just sitting there and I'm like, ah, right. right. Yeah, and then, and the problem with many societies and this gets into some of the details of the second half of the paper is that, you know, we, we truncate the erotic to the sexual specifically. Right. And so we make the kind of dyadic sexual relationship, the core of all, our most important emotional energies. And we, we kind of don't allow ourselves to eroticize the other parts of our lives. I'm not talking about like other sexual partners at all. I'm talking about like having erotic relationships with books outside your marriage, <laughs> right? Having, having really deep and dynamic natural mysticism, um, right? So these forms of erotic expression and deep emotional investment and deep emotional expression you know, where are those available in our culture outside of this, outside of the kind of the soulmate, the sex of the, 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 the that in schools, that subjectivity, right. when you erase the subject from the educational curriculum, you lose any kind of transmission of knowledge about how to deepen and enrich that erotic encounter. Right. Totally. And so, and I'm talking about erotic encounters with treats and, and ideas and people who Again, so this is this notion of what's what is a human relationship? So there's the first question: What's the human? <laughs> Which we were saying is a metaphysical issue, and then there's this other metaphysical issue of what is the relationship? What is the we? Right, the us, right, the co-person, right, the shared subjectivity that develops between people when they are, for example, in love or deep collaboration. And so there's this whole space of merger and cooperation beyond the personal, uh, which has been a part of human existence for a very long time, which again, modernity didn't quite know what to do with it. You know, there's been a lot of collective efficiencies, which is to say we've learned how to build mega machines. It was Lewis Mumford's idea where, you know, machines out of people, right? Bureaucratic efficiency and kind of top down centralized authority, command and control. And you build pyramids, build assembly lines, et cetera, collective efficiency. We have not had a lot of collective intelligence or collective consciousness, right? And this has to do with the best hopes of what democracy would be, which would be to find a way to synthesize the best notions and to make a sum that's greater than its parts out of a group of people. These things happen, um, but they happen not by design at a large scale. They happen usually at a small scale. So, you know, one of the tasks that we face in the project of cosmoerotic humanism and in the metaphysics of Eros is, again, re-understanding, reframing relationship, dyadic, triadic, larger, <laughs> right? What is it like to be with other people and to not pretend like the modern and the postmodern would have you do, that you're all self-contained <laughs> and that you're you know, not dependent upon one another, when in fact we're all radically dependent upon one another and actually subject to the and at the mercy of one another and uh social media allows us to forget that and we treat one another quite poorly <laughs> people we supposedly hate who were we at a town hall meeting having coffee before the conversation we'd probably be quite polite to mm. and so there's this sense of the missing humanity and that has to do with 
misunderstanding what a relationship is. <laughs> and uh, we misunderstand what it's like to meet a person because we don't know what a person is. A person is just this stupid monkey that evolved randomly <laughs> billions of years. Why should I show them respect? They're wrong. They're politically biased or whatever. It's like, no, man. Person, a, a person has a soul. You know, like just saying that in a modern context, you get laughed out of the room. You say a person has a soul in the postmodern context. No, believe whatever you want. That you can ask your truth. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, totally. But if you say a person has a soul and you meet it in this kind of strict, for example, anthroposophical sense, then the implication of the soul is that the person is reincarnated many times, right? That what is done to them and what they do will impact future lives. Um, and it's also the result of prior lives, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you talk a little bit in the piece about object-oriented ontology, which is, you know, I'm really yes, fascinated totally. by the writing of Timothy Morton and yeah. this notion that I think, you know, he puts that in what he calls the strange stranger or the, fu the future future, you yeah. know, that there's, you know, the withdrawn and unknowable mystery of even your own body. Right. And, and that that's where the soul enters the conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, the soul is certainly a hyper object in that sense, right? Which is to say, the it's an object that no matter how hard you study it, <laughs> it will exhaust your attempts to fully capture it. Um, and uh, you know, an airplane isn't a hyper object. You could break an airplane down to all of its however many hundreds of thousands component parts, and ultimately have just a complex system. You can fully understand the airplane. That's a closed system. But something like a rainforest, <laughs> right, or the or a single human body, uh, or your brain, even just a single brain, uh, let alone something like the universe or the whole Earth. Um, these are what's been called an object-oriented ontology, hyperobjects. So that's a first step towards a metamodern ontology where a certain epistemic humility is at play, right? And and we allow ourselves to say, listen, we're never going to know exactly how your body works, <laughs> right? So how dare I have the hubris to make an intervention that could form irreparable damage? Why not do no harm first <laughs> and, uh, and, and work in a state of not knowing and approach the hyper object with certain reverence, right? And so you yeah, have soul qualities certainly have that. And anyone who's been an educator and worked with students of almost any age, if you really let in <laughs> the student, you realize that this is a very complex um, responsibility, being an educator or a parent, for example, mm -hmm. because the individual is a hyper-object. And this gets to that, the metaphysical importance of uniqueness as a category. Now we're back to cosmoerotic humanism, which would posit that, that evolution actually develops towards increasing uniqueness. So that evolution is in the business of creating ever more complex hyper-objects. The human being in our local environment, obviously, <laughs> the most complex hyper-object aside from the universe itself. Um, and, it started uh, raining as you said that. Nice. It's a nice little oh. touch there. And so like the question of why did it start raining is it, it confronts us with the hyper object of the global ecosystems. Uh, the question of why it started raining right when I said that <laughs> <laughs> confronts us with potentially other metaphysical realities. Um, and this gets into other conversations about like Colin Wilson and and those people who've studied the scientific realities of synchronicity and occurrences that defy chance and seem to imply a relationship between human intentionality and the material substrate of the universe. 
right? So again, and there's good evidence that the mind affects the body in your own life every day because you move your arm by thinking about it. <laughs> uh, and what you eat can change your mood. Uh, and yet we think that that's where the mind ends and matter begins. Um, but in fact, the mind extends far beyond the skin encapsulated ego, as it were. Right. You brought up synchronicity, so we're gonna we're going there because it would be I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about what a meta modern understanding of time looks like. <laughs> I, I actually don't have a super coherent answer to this. Um, I, you know, before the call, I, I said that. Time is probably the most complex metaphysical subject. Um, you know, if you read a book like, for example, Alfred White, uh, Alfred North Whitehead's Process of Reality, um, that's a metaphysics that places essentially time or sequence at the heart of creation itself, which is to say that the universe is by definition temporal or sequentially unfolding so that you don't get a universe without getting something like evolution and a compounding or non-arbitrary sequence or kind of like unfolding. Um, now, in the paper I write about how, as I just mentioned, that the, the mind itself is actually extended beyond the nervous system. And this is a very important point that was raised in the cognitive sciences in the late 90s, the, uh, and it was under the theory of the extended mind. David Chalmers was involved in the conversation. And the basic idea being that once I'm used to my phone or even used to the library that I have in my house, my mind ceases to be limited by what I have, like within my skin, in, intradermally. Uh, and the mind now actually includes the books and includes the affordances of my cell phone, for example. Um, and so that's the thing that humans have been doing for a long time. We've actually been using the environment as a way to offload and capture cognitive stuff. And so if you look at sundials and things like Stonehenge or the pyramids or other sacred archaeological sites built by ancient humans, most of what these were were actually architecturally designed time capture devices, right? And... So what this shows is one of the first attempts of humanity to touch the real beyond the imagination and beyond the egocentric defense mechanisms and beyond you know the illusions of the, the the nervous system itself and to try to capture subjective time which we all f feel is this kind of like temporal duration something's far away and it's actually odd the more you try to feel into time but that's another <laughs> topic uh, so there's subjective time which is tricky. Uh, which is why we have timers and calendars. And so the f some of the first things ancient humans did were to codify subjective time into objective time through the creation of technologies that were basically externalized time capture, like a sundial, for example. Mark's and so, own. yes, precisely. That's actually William Irwin Thompson. He suggests that the first measurement instrument ever found was on a, a medicine woman, and she was essentially marking for her menstrual period and the, the moon cycles for ritual uh, purposes. Um, but again, it was like you need to have the, you know, the chalk marks on the wall with the slash through them for the five if you're the prisoner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, time needs to be captured uh, kind of outside the mind in a way. And the objectivity of time is tricky. Um, 
more so than the objectivity of a rock hitting you ahead is how long were you unconscious for when you wake up? <laughs> right. It's like, it's, it's this trickiness because it has to do with awareness and kind of the alertness and consciousness that characterizes the human. So you'll note that animals do not build sundials, even though they could benefit greatly from them. And so one of the things that actually sets the human apart is that the human can make metaphysics <laughs> that relate to things that are objectively real, like time. Wait, 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 wait. Did, did we just go tautological here? Did, are, we, are we suggesting that the ability to make metaphysics is what separates us metaphysically from... Uh, that could be a tautology. It could be. It could be. I mean, I think maybe dolphins probably have some very complex views about the nature of the universe that they live in. I would actually totally believe it's not, I'm not trying to, and I say this in the paper, you know, I'm not trying to draw a stark line between animals and humans, but I, but I would suggest, yes, that in, in the kind of the hierarchy of beings, as it were, in the evolutionary chain, <laughs> there was this moment when humans became kind of radically separate, almost like a glitch in the matrix <laughs> due to this reflectivity and due to the ability to externalize the mind into its environment in a kind of very cognitively powerful way. And, uh, yeah, so, and that led to the seeking of understanding the nature of causality, which led us to where we are now. <laughs> I have a question past you, just because it's my hope that in every one of these episodes we can, quote-unquote, break a little new ground on the topic and you know this particular issue the issue of of time in a uh, you know what at least ken wilbur was calling it at the time a post-metaphysical meaning you know like i think he's just trying to like sanitize the conversation for people because right. he, even that stuff was deeply metaphysical but this this understanding of time where we're inhabiting this vastly you know like you said polycentric non-linear conceptual space seems to be well, you point at the, you know, in that list of metamodern statements on reality, talk about actuality and potentiality. To recognize the potentials and potentiality rather than facts and actualities constitute the most fundamental or more real reality. This is uh, quoting Freenock. Uh, mm. What we usually call reality is only actuality, one slice of an infinitely larger hyper-complex pie. Actuality is only a case of a deeper reality called absolute totality. This seems, this seems to align with, you know, various interpretations of quantum physics, you know, that, that talk about the, you know, an enacted, like the decohered world emerging out of this space of possibility. And that it, it sort of affords us a couple different ways of possibly looking at time. One is, I think, more intuitive and conventional that the real sort of accretes or concresses out of the actual um, right. in some sort of step-by-step -step fashion. Uh, that's the, you know, uh, whitehead's exactly. sort of view of things. And then, um, but, you know, before our conversation, you suggested that you thought that, that uh, the accretion view was mistaken. I think there's another view, which is that maybe there's like a spatialized way of looking at this where past and future are on horizons of the present at which our observer is located and that on the other side of this hypersphere of possibility is the unthinkable and at the horizon is the sort of imaginable you know the history or 
the future, you know, the origin and destiny of our narrative. And then, you know, around the horizon, we have a sort of that, that spectrum of what we ordinarily call the possible, but the poss that's really only one axis of several in which, you know, we're talking about the difference between the possible and the actual. And so we stand on, like, this, this notion that the actual may be somehow less real than the potential reminds me of to call into the idea of a, a, the life of a soul beyond the life of a person. Right. That, you know, I was talking about this with my friend the other day, that if you do sort of accept, like Timothy Morton says about the body as a hyper-object, that it's made out of all of this stuff, that's dead in at least in you know the traditional sense of thinking of it and it has existed for vastly longer than you have and will for vastly longer than you have that the majority of your sort of life as stuff is actually dead that like you're actually much vastly more dead in one perspective than you are alive that's steiner said basically the same thing yeah so i mean do you see in a way that that sort of suggests a a time of like a universal simultaneity in which the ancestors and the the unborn are present in every moment. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little flowery here, but I feel like that there's. <laughs> well, this is great. I mean, this is exactly it because it's kind of like you know sleep and death. Right. This is what Steiner talked a lot about this because this is where time gets really weird. Um, because time seems to stop for those who die and for those who are asleep. Um, and this question of, you know, is there some kind of atemporal simultaneity in which everything exists at once? You know, that, that has been a resounding, I think, yes, from the great esoteric sides of the religious traditions and the theologies from a bunch of different traditions, that there's there's kind of an internal... Uh, in, excuse me, internal to the material, there's an internal eternal. <laughs> so if you go into the material, you'll find something that is timeless. Um, and yet in the, in the dead matter, in the, in the mineral kingdom, as Steiner would say, you know, you participate in the mineral kingdom. You're like moving around with stardust. Like you've, you've organized it magically <laughs> to do things that you call with your hands, but it's actually this ancient <laughs> stuff, uh, which is dead and dying and in a process of decay, which is continually re-enlivened by kind of influxes of novelty and creativity at the edge of time. Um, so you have to say that both are correct. There is both an atemporal simultaneity in which, in quotation marks, all, so, all souls are in communion, <laughs> right, with the one. Uh, but then there's this radically contingent temporal unfolding, which just kind of like trickles down from the, from the atemporal and eternal. And so the, the eternal is different from the everlasting, the everlasting is the soul that moves forever through time, right? Mm. And again, so it's like if you begin to work with this type of metaphysics, which is very in holding with the anthroposophical or Rudolf Steiner tradition, then when, you, when a child is born and comes to your school, this child has an everlasting soul, right? Be careful. <laughs> like, like have reverence. And likewise with yourself when you look in the mirror. So there's this sense of a, inviolable dignity to every being because it participates in the everlastingness of time and the eternal. So again, it's like, am I allowed to say this stuff? 
in a post, <laughs> right? Seriously, in a postmodern and modern context, not really allowed to say this stuff. Now, if I like got some kind of degree or did something in religion, then maybe I'm allowed to. So there's this question of who gets to decide and how do we as individuals decide on the answer to these deep questions, which have impact, as I'm saying, how you treat a child in a school, for example, right? Do you treat them as basically something to be used for economic efficiency, <laughs> right? Um, or do you treat them as somehow this much more invaluable resource um, with a certain sovereignty and autonomy that would you work with it right would save the world? <laughs> well, I mean, to get a little dark, maybe in a modern mm -hmm. thing, it's both, right? Right. Well, I mean, it gets potentially both. Right now, we're out of this this moment when we're going to see. I mean, or is one of my favorite quotes from Sri Aurobindo, the great Indian sage. He said somewhere towards the end of the life divine, you know, as, as we reach the limits of planetization, which is to say as all the humans become connected and we build one giant shopping mall, uh, uh, heaven will race with hell, essentially. It, and, and so there's this sense that the beginning of a new historical period is usually a time of upheaval and also a time where we kind of make some critical decisions about you know, how we'll move forward. Because um, you could reify a false or truncated metaphysics, and we've done it before. <laughs> humans have. To reify a false and truncated metaphysics, for example, to say love doesn't exist, free will doesn't actually exist, to like really try to build institutions based on that, um, which would result in a radically authoritarian society. Um, you know, these things have been done, um, but never with the technological power that we now have to, for example, build a school around that hypothesis, <laughs> uh, et cetera, or an army. Um, and so there's this very kind of, I think, sincere need to make sure that as we move through this period, you know, we're, we're keeping the voices, uh, the voices you want to simplify and reduce and return to modernity <laughs> and the monological, keep those voices at bay. So like, applaud the postmodernists. <laughs> but then we also want to, you know, in a sense, get beyond this postmodern critique and the whole spirit and emotion of critique and somehow move into a space where we're reconstructing a, a new meta narrative instead of taking pot shots and deconstructing anyone who steps up to try to offer a meta narrative. And so, it, as I've said, after postmodernism, it needs to be provisional, right? Polycentric built iteratively through collaboration, but there needs to be a project in good spirits in that direction because the regressive tendencies on the right who want to drive us towards racism and nationalism are having questions about what is the human, you know, and, and, and answering them irrationally. We, we need to have very reasonable and profound answers to questions about like, what is the human? What are we here on earth to do? What is a relationship? How important are relationships, right? What is love? Is love real? <laughs> uh, what's the significance of love? Like these things are a, a part of what it means to be human. And we are relegating them. Uh, uh, yeah, so I could just keep going. So I'll pause. I'll pause. I think you're getting, you're getting the drift. You're getting the drift. Yeah. So let's, let's map out. We're getting close here, I think, to a a bow tie on this let's map out what we kind of know for sure just based on the general tendency and i will argue this with skeptics if necessary and i'm sure you would too towards that 
greater, more complex hyper object. We know that polycentrism is ecologically resilient and robust. So that's that's sort of that's a that's a universal trend in this biosphere. Right. You know, we know that again, like resilience is itself an attractor pulling everything toward it. What do we see as the characteristics that we can kind of sketch out as more or less guaranteed about a future that has found its new, you know, a planetary human culture that's found a new equilibrium in this meta narrative. How do you think it's going to look? How do you think it's going to feel? Not just look, right. Right? not just to be seen, not just the science of the, you know, visible, but right. like how, how will it feel? You know, I mean, so the most, like when I try to think about future, it's quite scary. Um, you know, the most potent sense I have for what, like the other side will be in a sustainable post-transition civilization. I think about the interiority of that culture, not about like the technological, socioeconomic, sociopolitical, and I can talk a lot about that. And I have this whole thing in my book that's coming about these 13 social miracles, which include things like a basic income guarantee and, uh, you know, taking down national borders <laughs> and uh, returning to permaculture. And because it lays out this whole kind of an integral parlance, lower right hand kind of stuff that would have to happen to have something like a sustainable, just civilization on the other side of what I see as the kind of crisis of the Anthropocene. And the crisis of the Anthropocene is going to be difficult and politically contentious, and it's kind of the bridge of fire to the cosmic age, as Sun Ra would say. Yeah. And so when, I, so when I think about the other side, I think mostly about what it takes to live in a post-tragic culture, mm -hmm. right? And this is, is one of the facets of cosmorotic humanism, this teaching by Gaffney on the post-tragic. And so there's this question of, you know, modernity was pre-tragic, right? Modernity was just like triumphant meta-narrative of historical progress. Boom. <laughs> like, don't listen to the people we colonialized and don't listen to the women and don't listen to, like, just go be happy because we're progressing. Technology is succeeding. Disease is ending. Universal education. Everyone can read. Oh, we land on the moon. Fucking modernity. Yes. Like, positive. Pre-tragic. You don't even look at the tragedy. Like, you, that's part of the thing is keeping the tragedy out of public eye. In fact, post-modernity flips the script entirely. Postmodernity is stuck in the tragic entirely. And anyone who's experienced tragedy knows that there's a moment to be in tragedy. And there's a moment to actually really process tragedy and to not avoid the emotion and the intensity of tragedy. But then you need to get after the tragic and find a way to love and laugh again and to think optimistically, even though you know that tragedy is a very real part of the world. Um, and so the situation with postmodernity and the postmodern identity is often one of getting encased and entrapped in tragic without a larger meta narrative that can frame it and then provide an exit into the post tragic. And so it, when you're in a pre tragic culture like modernity, you confront tragedy by essentially ignoring it, occluding it getting it out of you, pretending it doesn't exist, or you can spiritually bypass it. You can say, ah, everyone, karma through reincarnation brought the poor people to be poor, the rich people to be rich. So that's just how it is. 
right? Your classic bad metaphysics of reincarnation. But you can justify at the pre-tragic level, you can you can explain away all this so-called tragedies as not being tragic. And you see that even now with some postmodernists. They escape the postmodern tragedy by adopting a kind of pre-modern or modern religious view where they, they meditate themselves out of the tragedy. And it doesn't actually exist. It's all samsara. It's an illusion. It's not, it's not real, actual tragedy. Um, so getting it's stuck in the boring a, conversation you can possibly have is with well, and it, people. <laughs> well, and it's it's also emotionally a very dangerous position because tragedy is actually something that needs to be processed, which is why the moment that postmodernity is stuck in is actually it's, it's what's sometimes called complicated grief, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like this very delicate and difficult emotional transition that needs to take place where we need to say essentially, yes, tragedy, human history, tragedy, yes. And in fact, make reparations in some cases <laughs> and then somehow find a way to look each other in the eye again and laugh and, and build a positive future. And that requires, again, a return to some kind of metaphysical narrative that can make sense of the evil that happened. that can make sense of human folly, mistake, right? Greed, sadism, all of these things that are part of the tragedy. Um, how do we make sense of that if we're just monkeys that evolved in a meaningless material universe? <laughs> we can't. We're just just tragic. The whole thing's just tragic. There's no escape from the postmodern tragic critique unless we go back to a triumphant pre-tragic scientism, right? Which is, again, the transhumanists right. escaped. They, they escaped the postmodern tragedy into the basically hypermodern pre-tragic view where you can explain away. They breach-birthed of- themselves into Pinocchio. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, but so I'm saying the future has to be some culture of, of the post tragic, some way of, again, telling a broader meta narrative that allows us to basically all lose face and then regain face together. Um, you know, because the more tragedy is a great leveler. That's the thing. Like, tragedy uh, is something all humans share. Um, and, you know, the the needs, and again, this is why religion has always existed, <laughs> because religion provides narrative beyond the tragedy. I mean, Christianity being the greatest example of a post-tragic religion. I mean, and they didn't nail Buddha to the cross. Buddha died peacefully, uh, lying on his side. Uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, anyway. Yeah. Uh, whereas Christ uh, on the cross. Um, and so there's this way in which we need culturally to think about a resurrection, um, if I can speak in these terms, because it's like there's going to be a lot of tragedy, both revealed in terms of what has happened in the recent history that we don't know about yet <laughs> and ongoing and escalating into the near future decades. And so whole groups of people need to think about how to get into a kind of post-tragic consciousness to remain productive, creative, positive solution building. Because there will be a tendency, especially amplified by the commodity, marketized social media, etc., to to wallow in the tragedy to the extent of basically decimating the morale of the entire culture. If that hasn't already happened as a result of postmodernism, it may have already happened that we're we're, we're so mired in the tragedy that it's you know uh, we're, we're something's going to have to shock us out of it. Um, and uh, so these are what my reflections get at. The, the whole technical question about how do we weather this transition through the kind of birth of the Anthropocene into the into the kind of new earth. Um, and then 
the technical questions of what the post-transition civilization looks like. I mean, these are some of the conversations I have with Schmachtenberger and Landry and Greenhall. Um, and there's this, there's a sense of needing to answer those questions very carefully, both how do we get there? How do we weather the storm? And then what's the other side look like? Um, and what do these post-transition technologies look like, both social and material technologies? Um, and the key social technology is going to be building a kind of meaning-making culture that has a certain resilience and coherency to it. Um, uh, and, you know, the Middle Ages are interesting. Like, they were terrible in, of course, many ways. <laughs> um, but when you look at the monastic traditions that spread, um, you see during these times of darkness, there also are attempts to preserve access to uh, very important truths, especially truths of the interior. Um, so I, I foresee a new monasticism as part of the transition. I foresee uh, many modes of alternative education and kind of mystery schools in the wilderness. Um, I see a amp number of intentional communities and um, basic questionings of democratic process, experimentations with domestic collaboration households. And so I think a lot of what we've taken for granted in modernity, especially in America, will be shifting. Some of it by choice, some of it on the back of climate change-induced disaster or political conflict. That's the, you know, the refugee crisis alone makes this world a new world <laughs> in, in which we need to find a way to house millions of people. Um, on an ongoing basis. <laughs> uh, and so, again, we need a, a metaphysics of love or we'll fail at that <laughs> because then we will house these people and they will be seen as parasites on the productive people and the tent cities will be these terrible places because it's not love. It's a competitive Darwinian universe. These are the losers. That film, Looper, kind of portrays the climate change uh, refugees. In yes. Light, you know, yeah, as... totally. Totally. And so there's that sense of needing to give ourselves the moral courage to embrace the stranger um, and to hold humanity as one family, even when there are misbehaving members of the family, <laughs> you know? And so it's, yeah, the, the resurgence of hate and the resurgence of dehumanization on the, both the left and the right, you know, both the modernists and the postmodernists um, are, are missing the point essentially, which is, the point we're being called to by the global crisis, which is that we need to return somehow to our humanity, some kind of humanism, some kind of love-based or relationship-based, um, sovereignty-based way of thinking about who we are, what we do. Um, uh, uh, otherwise, it will be just basically a kind of a race to the high ground, <laughs> you know, or like who gets on the ark <laughs> uh, as the world burns. It's just or, or floods or, or whatever it ends up being. I feel like this was expressed recently in a conversation I had with my father, who is uh, he's a retired, successful businessman, you know, is used to seeing things sort of from the, the general's seat and making uh, what in the tarot you might call king of swords style decisions. And we were having a conversation about conflict minerals because I have this problem with constantly getting into difficult conversations with my father just to see what <laughs> sticks, you know, see how it goes. And talking about, you know, just how indefensible it is that Apple worked out this arrangement with Foxconn, that Foxconn 
who manufactures iPhones and all this stuff. And, right. they, you know, the, for those who do not know, you're listening to this on a device made in a factory, most likely in Asia somewhere where they have nets installed outside the building because so many people throw themselves off the roof. And years ago, there was an arrangement made, you know, that Apple was like, wait a minute, we can't have this for the people making our, our stuff. Uh, you guys need to improve the working conditions here. And then there was really no, you know, it, it, as is often the case in like this kind of situation where corporations are being relied upon to enforce right. morality. Right. No follow up, no enforcement. I mean, nothing substantial. You know, the worker conditions at Foxconn haven't really improved. Um, you know, the people who are, you know, mining in Africa for these things, you know, the, the, the worker conditions aren't being enforced there. And my right. dad's like, well, you have no high ground to stand on here. You're yeah. using these devices all the time. I'm saying, well, no, actually, that's exactly why it matters, is that we don't know these people, but we are dependent on them. We'll never meet them in a way, but we do need to find a way to be able to have that conversation beyond the conversation of, well, you're implicated in this, therefore you have, you know, you have no valid stance. You have no ground to stand on. Which is, I think, so often the case in a sort of uh, perverse reciprocal in identity politics, you know. But I, you know, I bring that up as a way of just sort of attempting a, a human example here. Yeah, and, that, and that's a very good one. I mean, it's, it's one I've used myself uh, when giving talks because it's just so poignant to be giving a slideshow on a Macintosh computer that you know was kind of built using a global supply chain that's just kind of demonstrably both unjust and detrimental to the ecosystem, right? So it's like we are all dependent upon systems that were built in a fairly haphazard, accidental, kind of profit-driven, makeshift way. Um, and there was a certain amount of kind of bad intention, and there was a certain amount of just history unfolding extremely fast under the pressure of extremely complex technological innovation, and so this is part of the meta-modern move is to realize the historicity, not just the kind of, um, you know, the intersectionality, as they say, but the historicity, which is to say you don't choose the place where you're born. It's back to death, birth, sleep, right? Why is one person born somewhere and one person is born somewhere else in the global world system, you know, in the global capitalist system? It's, this is what Abraham Maslow called being injustice, Right. Mm. Uh, different from the kind of forms of injustice that are created by humans, which, of course, we have some control over. Even in the most just system, there would still be the position of the least well off and someone will be born into that position. And so we need to be concerned about what is the position of the least well off. This is a Rawlsian idea. And then realize that, you know, anyone in any of those positions now is related to us because we live in a totally interconnected system in which there are no externalities, right? The, the, the logic of the meta-modern global ethic has to be one in which there's a logic that where there are no externalities. The whole logic of modernity and postmodernity is built around creating externalities, right? If you hate someone as a postmodern, let's say leftist, like with you hate the people on the right, like you just hate them. Like you, you literally think they're just maybe be killed, Perhaps, you know, you're creating externalities. Hate creates externalities. It creates more hate. <laughs> uh, love does not create externalities. Love creates containers, communion. 
And so similarly, capitalism was built on this logic of externalities. The factory produces the commodity, but it also produces wastewater and stuff out the smoke pipe and depressing lives for its workers. So it's produced all of those things, but it's perceived as only producing the commodity, <laughs> right? All the rest is what's called externalities of commodity production. And we live our lives both in material systems with externalities and socio-emotional systems of externalities, which is to say, when you're rude to the person who gives you your coffee, you've just created an externality different from if you were very polite to them <laughs> uh, in terms of the ramifications and kind of ripple effects of, of uh, emotional life in, in communities. So f we need to change away from the logic of externalities in a very rigorous way and actually very quickly. And I don't know exactly how it's going to work because many of the global supply chains are extremely intricate and extremely kind of fragile. And we've built up very complex technological systems that depend upon massively distant kind of relations of production. <laughs> As you, you already said, they're mining the rare earth minerals in Africa, right? They're somehow smelting them, putting or whatever they do to them somewhere else. And then they bring in the China for the actual assembly line. And that's why they end up in California, you know, at an Apple store. And we take this for granted. Like, this is just how the world is. But this is actually a very recent <laughs> product, post-1970 neoliberal supply chain dynamics at a global scale. And uh, Trade talks are going on right now. For those wanting to situate this conversation in the historical record, the, the conversation around, it, you know, it replacing NAFTA with some free trade zone agreement between the U.S. and Mexico and Canada, and that this issue of... You know, Trump's famously narrow-minded perspective on this stuff where, you know, he's trying to, to punish people with, with tariffs in this global supply chain where, you know, if you try to enforce a tariff on Mexico and Mexico is getting their parts from the United States right. and other factories, then you've actually, in an attempt to achieve some sort of superior political position, you've injured your own base, your own constituency. Yeah, no, and so there's, there's no externalities. That's why we can't even fight wars anymore, like reasonably. And that's the thing is that at some point it'll, it'll click, even for people who are purely selfish and just want to survive. <laughs> that actually, there's, there's, it's not that it's like a nice hippie idea, like this is a warm, fuzzy idea, there's no externalities. Like it's, it's actually literally true about the nature of material reality and, and the ecos. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, this will eventually at some point have to dawn. Like, that's the nice thing about reality is that, as Charles Sanders' purse, and this was his best definition of reality, reality is that which resists misinterpretation. <laughs> and so you can only go on so long in a reality-avoidant culture. Um, eventually, it, it bites back, as it were. Um, and so the externalities things is, is, is part of that. And I think, again, it's about the tragic and the post-tragic, onboarding a ton of guilt to the point of, disabling your own agency and sovereignty because you know about Foxconn. That's not the answer, but you do need to know about Foxconn, right? So it's like, how do you hold this sense of living in the midst of tragedy and yet still participating in the creation of some kind of post-tragic world? Um, it's a very deep emotional thing that I know a lot of people personally just work at, you know? And so some kind of new metaphysics of the human is part of that work. It's part of thinking about reshaping our emotional lives and allowing a better world to emerge through our choices and relationships. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's probably a good place to, 
to call it, man. I feel like there's so much more that I would like to, you know, another conversation focusing on the actual tools of, uh, of transition and the techniques and methods. Right. Well, and education. I'm, a, I'm an educator. The book's mostly about what the future of schools uh, and schooling and educational relationships will look like. Um, and, uh, you know, it should be out in a couple of months, hopefully. So, so what, is it, what will that be called? This book is called Education in a Time Between Worlds, uh, Essays on the Future of Schools, Technology, and Society. Mm. And the paper, which I will post in the show notes, is Love in a Time Between Worlds on the metamodern, quote, return, end quote, to a metaphysics of Eros. Quite, quite juicy. Awesome. <laughs> and this, yeah, as has this conversation been, man. Where can people find you on the webs? So I have no social media presence, but I do have a website, uh, just zackstein.org, Z-A-K-S-T-E-I-N.org. And my, uh, my email's on there on the about page if you want to email me. Awesome. And you're wise. You're wise in the tradition of Jaron Lanier to have no social media. It's, it's what allows you to write papers like this. <laughs> it is in part. Um, that's another conversation. But yes, I'd advise everyone to unplug at least uh, rhythmically, if not entirely. So um, before we call this one, I want to invite you to do what I love to ask the guests to do, which is. If, if you're in a conversation, in whatever kind of sense you take it, with the future listeners of this episode, you know, the ones that will be born after you die, what would you want to know from them and what would you want to say? I think I would want to say that myself and those I know have done our best. And I think I'd want to know basically how's it going in the future. <laughs> That's what I want. Just a general check-in from the future, all quadrants, all levels, all lines. Mm. How are you? That's what I would ask. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Man. Yeah, man. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful. Wonderful.